Hello again, this is Josh Carr with The Real Angle, and today I'm speaking with uh, Malcolm Frodsham, uh, Director of Real Estate Strategies. Malcolm, how are you doing today? Yes, good afternoon, Josh, or oh, good morning for you. Yeah, I'm doing well, thank you. Close enough. Uh, yeah, this is the uh, the blessing and the curse of doing an interview of someone who's not in the same time zone, which I think is probably... Re a reasonable guess on the part of people listening based just purely on the accents. Uh, so uh, so let's start with the basics. Uh, where in the world are you today? Yep, so we're we're based in London in the UK. Um, so I'm currently down in Kent. Um, Excellent. Which is uh, pretty, pretty miserable and glum, which is uh, what we expect this time of year. Yeah, sadly, not surprising. Not surprising for, nah, for, your, not at all. for your neck of the woods. Uh, <laughs> Definitely. So, yeah, so let, let's talk a little bit. So first off, one thing I always like to tell people right at the outset, because invariably, if I don't mention it, someone will email me. Uh, the company is Real Estate Strategies and their web yep, address is right. uh, realestatestrategies.co.uk, uh, which, again, would give a tip off that you're based in the UK. So so let's start with the basics. Uh, real Estate Strategies. What What is Real Estate Strategies? And... You, you run the place. When did you start it? What's the background, if you will? Well, we started back in 2013. Um, and uh, I mean, my background has always been in real estate research and particularly real estate data. Um, so I'd sort of come out of uh, industry roles doing research and strategy. And um, I'd always I'd always sort of thought, well, actually, the tools you actually use doing real estate research, I mean, they're not they're not, you know, it's not, it's not easy. It's not actually easy to actually influence decisions. So it'd be quite frustrating, um, basically sitting in the office and, and hear about deals that are happening and thinking, well, did I, did I actually influence, <laughs> did I actually influence that deal? How did that deal happen? Now, where were, where were you before real estate strategies? Because I think, you know, yeah. the job of economic forecaster, if I could generalize, and, you know, I think you fall under that rubric, um, you know, we see a lot of talking heads on television and it's not really clear where where these people came from like what were you doing before you were running your own shop if you will yeah yeah i mean it is interesting the history of sort of real estate research i mean i, I graduated all the way back in 1992 into the teeth of a pretty miserable recession which had basically wiped out the real estate development industry here in the uk um so there weren't wasn't really a huge amount of recruitment going on and and I stumbled into this sort of obscure company that that had the idea of collecting data on real estate markets um over time that company grew uh, it was called investment property data bank ipd um and I was there for about 7 years um before I sort of jumped jumped ship and uh, and went into sort of the fund management world um, and there were two companies. One was called Barclays Property Investment, and the other one was Legal and General Investment Management. Uh, and I was doing some, you know, some great stuff. Uh, I mean, at Barclays, we were doing derivatives, which was fascinating. Uh, we were launching funds, so we were investing in in residential property all across the UK and marketing that to investors all across Europe. Um, in Legal and General, you know, we were setting strategies for unlisted funds again for the for the life fund for pension funds you know trying to grow funds so it was a very interesting and, and and very varied um it was always just that frustration of thinking well you know did i actually influence <laughs> what did i influence right. right you're generating you're reading data you're generating data and i mean not to not to beat up on the research arms too much but 
I know at a lot of commercial brokerage firms, the research arms are used really as marketing tools more than anything else. And, yes. You know, and there's often a bias. I mean, it's it's rare that I've seen a research arm at a brokerage firm say, "Don't trade." You know, like they they want they want to generate revenue, which I get, and that of course can infect the research process. But um, but nonetheless, no, I, I hear you. I mean, it's I I've I, I've done a little bit of consulting work in my own life, and uh, you write a big fat report, and then you're not really clear if it achieved anything other than you know, kill a tree. And... Oh yeah, I did. Uh, I did have one uh, one great boss who was uh, a pretty tough guy, and uh, he made it very clear that um, if I hadn't got across the, the the main points in three bullet points, he he really wasn't going to go any further than that. So uh, big research reports. They're they they yeah. I'm not entirely convinced. Um, they 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 often have much much impact, and I think the way to think about research is you know unless it is going to be used purely as marketing. Right. Is that you've got you've got to think about it as you are influencing a process. And and the process is all about how this organization is actually doing what it does, which is usually managing other people's money. Right. And you want to influence that and make that as successful as possible, which which does mean fees. I mean, they are for your fee earning organizations. Right. Well, and this brings me to the services and products you provide. So what what yep. are the tools you're providing investors to in theory invest better? Yeah, we, we, we have sort of two key products. Um, one is um, our forecasting product uh, and the other is uh, an asset allocation model. So yeah. forecasting, we, we sort of regard as part of the asset allocation process. Um, so, you know, asset allocation as, as sort of distinct from, from, from stock selection is all about deciding, well, what sort of properties am I going to buy and, and where am I going to buy them? How does that actually fit into a portfolio? And I think that's the best place for research to really influence assets that are actually eventually bought because um, if you don't influence it quite early on at the sort of portfolio strategy phase really gets too late because you know once the fund manager and the agent are together that's it you know you, you can't get between them you know it's a ferocious right. once yeah. they're looking at the deal and they're bidding and money is being discussed they have they're already eager to get the deal done to hear at this point well retail is a bad idea they're way past that conversation. Um, yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, it's it's kind of a it, it's a crass example, but a colleague of mine, a, a guy I grew up with, uh, his father came from a decent amount of money, and his father was concerned that his son would marry for love uh, rather than other reasons. And he said to him once, and I'll always remember this. He said, "Son, I'm not telling you you should marry a rich woman. I am saying though you should only date rich women." This way, when you choose to marry, she'll oh, be brilliant. rich, which, which I thought was a wonderful way of putting it. And I, I think about what you're saying. Oh, I love that. It's it's similar. Um, I let let's pick first pick the product type, and then we can worry about it. Um, yep. Yeah, yeah. That. By the way, just side point. Uh, he did marry for love. She's a university oh. professor, and as if you know anything about university professors, uh, that's not a that you're not going to be living off of her labor. Let's just put it that way. Uh, not so rich. What are you going to do? But uh, they're happy. So such is life. Um, nonetheless, so you're providing a forecasting model. You're providing an yep. asset allocation model, and then you're updating that model monthly, quarterly. What's the what's that look like? Yeah, I mean, I mean, we keep it up to date formally every quarter. 
Okay. Um, the clients do do use it in very different ways. Uh, I've always been surprised at how many different ways people can use use the same product. Hmm. Um, so a lot of organisations they they want something that's very formal as part of their investment process, and they want to go through that process either once a year or or once a quarter. So you're really giving them a tool which allows them to step through right from the beginning. So what are we looking like in terms of supply? What are we looking like in terms of the background economics? Which are the key series you need to be interested in? What are the historical trends? And then if we use some econometric equations, which we do very transparent econometric equations, we can project those forward. And that enables the organization to start thinking about it and start saying, well, OK, that's that's all very well. But what, what, what do we actually believe? What do we actually think is true? Sure. And, and, and you're in you're in input to that decision making process like everything else. I mean, and then obviously there are there are events which no one can predict, like, you know, COVID, for example, which just. Yep. You have your theories and then the world intervenes, but that's OK. I mean, that that's just the way it works. Um, yeah, you know, I find, you know, the word econometric, my, my undergrad's in econ, and I did a lot of math. Uh, so I did do an econometric senior thesis. So I understand basically what that means. And uh, that's usually the point at which a lot of people sort of get off the bus, so to speak, and say, okay, I'm, I'm not really, uh, you know, it, it's interesting how many people, once you get to higher math, just sort of drop out of the conversation. Um, so you know yep. that that's that's what it is so client wise are you finding that when you're when you're talking to a client and you're saying these are the services i provide are you competing with another firm that provides similar services or do you find it's just simply a matter of getting them to buy a forecasting product at all like like by the time they come to you are you still sort of saying let me explain to you why forecasting makes sense um i guess yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good uh, that's a good question. I mean, the market does sort of divide up that you know organizations above a certain size they basically have to have a forecasting process. Right. You know, they will be interviewed once a year by the big consulting actuaries, and one of the questions they'll be asked is, "What is your consult uh, in forecasting process?" So they they have to have it. It's part of the conversation. It's just understood. Yeah. And yeah. Um, there's basically three reasonably large forecasting houses in the uk plus you've got the the big agents you know the cbres the jlls so it's a commodity you know quite frankly you can buy forecasting so we try and differentiate ourselves by saying yes you can buy forecasting anywhere but what we allow you to do is basically to build your own forecast so you're not going to take our view we will give you a view but quite frankly we want you to to own your view because if it's not owned you know, it, it always amazed me working in the fund management industry. You could have, you know, there might be half a dozen, maybe even 20 fund managers. Mm. And it's amazing how many have in their own individual view. Sure. So, sure. so in the same shop, you've got one, one fund that might be selling retail, another might be buying retail. And there's no homogeneity uh, of a uh, view. There's a there's a large U.S. money manager that I've done some work with over the years who will remain nameless for obvious reasons. But, um, you know, one of the challenge they had was they had an office in New York and one in Dallas and one in San Francisco, a few different physical offices. Again, we're a big country. And the challenge they had was New York was saying, well, the national inflation rate will be three. And Dallas was saying it would be two. And then the people at senior management were like, look, guys, 
you got to at least agree on what CPI is. Like the like, it's one thing to say Dallas will grow faster, but if we can't even agree on just a national inflation rate, what do we do in senior management? Like this is just crazy. Um, and that was a whole conversation. And then it became, how do you build that into the analytical tools they're using to make sure you've centralized certain base assumptions? Um, but yeah, that that definitely that definitely happens unless like. I guess senior management puts their foot down and says, guys, you got to get on the same page. We got to yep. decide as a firm what we're doing here. Um, yeah. I mean, they either have a, you know, a research led investment process or, or they don't. And if, and if they want to have, you know, some sort of process, then they are going to have to have some sort of formal uh, approach that they're taking. But I, I very much think it, it, what you really want to get at is, okay, well, well, what is this organization's philosophy? Because, you know, some organizations will be driven, you know, they might say terms like gut feel or something. But but even if they say these terms, that still means they do have some beliefs. Right. So you want to get at what those beliefs are. So it could be very simple things like offices are cyclical. You know, it's a very it's a very simple thing to say offices are cyclical, but it has very profound uh, ramifications for, for how you basically invest in offices uh, over time. So we can build forecasting models and we can show, you know, why our office is cyclical. And then we can also start saying, well, what might stop that from happening? And, and right now we've got working from home. So we have to say, well, OK, is there a, a reason to think that we've, we've somehow completely changed uh, the office rental cycle forever? Or is this a, a one off adjustment? You know, retail, as you mentioned earlier on, I mean, that was, you know, probably 12 years ago now when we started to see the first impacts. I mean, that, that has sort of decimated uh, retail rents all across the sure. UK and most of Europe. Yeah, online shopping, Amazon. I mean, look, during COVID, I mean, I'm, 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 I have a spouse and kids. We're a family of five. And uh, we survived the entire COVID thing buying everything off Amazon and other online services. So you start to say, well, if you can feed an entire family of five through the mail, then uh, why are we going to physical stores? And yep. um and it's not clear we need to. <laughs> I mean, you know, which no. is which is a scary statement to make. And I know the retail guys listening to this podcast will say, "What about experiences?" And that's true. There are experience. There is experiential retail. And if you want to go to a nail salon or get your hair cut, that is still a physical act. But that's a fraction of the retail in America and the world. I mean, it's and that's the other thing. I mean, I know we're talking about the UK here for the most part, but these are such global issues. I, th I think a lot of times, at least people I've worked with who are in the US, because I've done some international stuff, they sometimes see international stuff as exotic. And I'm like, well, fundamentally, it's the same business. There are only so many ways to build an office building. Local regulations vary, but it's still the same issues, uh, uh, you know. Yep, and it's and it's wonderful when you when you build models across different markets because you you start to see the same relationships. Um, so I mean, I remember doing one one big study when we were, we were looking across Europe, and we also looked across the US, and we just said, look, you know, we want to know over the long run, do office rents grow by more than inflation? Okay, or maybe okay. less than inflation. Sure. And sure. we studied market after market after market. And we only found a couple of exceptions. And basically, office rents will grow by inflation. They'll be very cyclical, mm -hmm. but they will grow by inflation. So for forecasting, that has very profound implications. For one, your forecasting should produce basically a long term growth forecast around inflation with a cycle. 
the, the exceptions are interesting and, and the exceptions are where you can actually find some genuine evidence of some sort of supply restriction. So in okay. Europe, we're basically looking at places like the West End of London and places like the historical core of Amsterdam, very, very small areas. So they're the sort of areas that then get very interesting because you say, well, actually, in the long run, these are good places to be outside of those areas we wouldn't really be overly concerned. You know, we would say if you find an office market you think is going to recover, that's as good as anywhere else. Right. It's all the same. And that, and that's, and that's the thing uh, you can, you can build a real estate empire. You can get a lot, you can get diversification through a lot of product type issues. Um, that doesn't mean you have to go to other cities and other countries, which kind of gets me to my next thing, which is your, the products you're currently selling are really focused on the UK, correct? Yep. Now, why i mean obviously you're in the uk so there's a bias for just doing the uk but like have you concern considered doing other markets or rolling we, that out we, as a product suite because it's a big yeah market. we we have we have forecast in the past um the the major european markets it didn't lend itself very well to our process because we were forced to basically rely on on what i would call prime data sets so where you basically get a series from the agents of prime rents and prime yields and then you get into something like COVID and, and you discover that, oh, well, the prime rents are, are all the same. Well, actually, that's not really very helpful if you are doing what we're doing, which is putting together econometric models. Yeah. So we sort of realized that that approach using this kind of data wasn't really going to work. Right. Um, so what we did instead with the clients is we, we started discussing with them, well, look, we, we, we want to do forecasting, but what we're really doing is asset allocation. So what we're interested in is is how these markets behave uh, and and what influences are there on them. Uh, and some of the big influences are um, inflation-linked uplifts. So if you've got markets where you've got inflation-linked uplifts, how do they behave compared to markets uh, which have different leasing structures? So we, we built more models for them rather than sort of econometric forecasts. Well, and I need to address that because you just hit on something which is quintessentially of your market, which is the whole concept of the uplift. Uh, at least in the U.S., we'll do a five-year lease, a 10-year lease. We'll fix a growth rate of 3%. It's fixed by contract. It, it's not flexible. I'm not saying you can't have a flexible one, but it that's a rarity. Uh, whereas it seems like in the U.K., you guys seem to prefer longer leases, which then have some sort of midterm adjustment which says okay if rents have gone up then there's an as you guys seem to call it an uplift which i've yep. only heard it in your context um out of curiosity why do you th i don't know if you have an opinion on this why do you think it is that you guys like long leases with uplifts versus something like an american model which is just it's a five-year deal it grows at three percent we'll renegotiate it in five years well, un unfortunately, it's a sort of part of our history. You know, it's a very feudal history that we've got. A lot of the landowning was aristocratic. Um, the first leases were actually about 125 years long with, with no uplifts. Um, and then after a while, people started to realise there was such a thing as inflation. So sure. they introduced rent reviews. <laughs> right. uh, they went for every 42 years to start with. Um, and then I they need realized to ask, that wasn't 42 a... years does seem like a random number. Um, well, it, it almost fits into 125, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's I guess so. There, sure, but... the time. Okay, fine. Times three. Okay, that, that kind of makes sense in a strange way. Okay, fine. fine. 
And then it came down to 14 years, then it went down to seven years, then it went down to five years. It was always underpinned by the idea that the rent couldn't fall. And that was very much basically about uh, the financial products that they were supporting and also the debt. You know, it makes it much easier to raise debt, particularly for development, if you've got a guaranteed minimum cash flow, even if it's not rising. But the world is changing. You know, the leases have been shortening, as I say, from 125 um, all the way down now. And, and they've really, you know, they've really come down, you know, five, 10 year leases with breaks. Um, you pretty much get across all the sectors now in the UK. Right. Yes, there are rent reviews, but there's break clauses. So it, it is basically negotiation. Which to my mindset, I mean, just from a labor standpoint, you know, if a company grows, if a company shrinks, you know, the the UK, your labor market is, compared to Europe, relatively flexible. You know, you, you can fire people as opposed to some European countries where it seems like you need an act of, of God, basically, to fire somebody. Um, so it always seemed to me like shorter leases make more sense in a flexible labor market just because if you're going to grow, you need more space. Just simple, yep. you know. And it's... And, you know, the, I mean, the whole sort of concept of uh, flexible leasing and flexible working, they're all coming together. Um, so we've obviously had the the demise of uh, WeWork, but, you know, we've we've had flexible leasing market for, for well, 20, 25, 30 years. Um, and it is always interesting how how these markets behave, because a, a lot of these um, operating companies, I mean, we work at the classic, they take a long lease, a 25-year lease from, from a landlord, mm-hmm. take a lot of incentives out at the beginning. And then in the good times, they could earn two, three, four times the rent by sure. leasing flexibly. Sure. Problem is in the bad times, that's when they can't get as much rent. That's when their vacancy rate, occupancy rate goes down. Right. Uh, they've got a lot of fixed costs and basically the business model doesn't work. So what we're, what we're moving towards now is a much more flexible model uh, where leases are a lot shorter. And that has big implications for, well, well, what is the rent? How do you measure the rent? How do you forecast the rent? Because the rent is nowhere near as visible as it, as it once was. Right. No, it's interesting. It's, it's definitely, it's the, the flex, watching Europe in general to sort of lump you in with the rest of Europe, watching Europe move towards a more flexible space market. I mean, the U.S. has been there for a long time. Uh, and, you know, talk about history. I mean, it goes to our history. You know, we we, we were not feudal by definition. So we, we didn't have that, basically. So we always were just shorter leases, and that's the way we did stuff. So it's, it's interesting watching it sort of uh, become more generic, more standardized, if you will. Um, and and a, lot, a, lot, a lot of trends in Europe. I mean, there is always a bit of a joke. In, in the UK and Europe that, you know, you just go to the US, see what they're doing. And 12 months later, it'll it'll come to the UK and Europe. Well, we are in Europe, of course. Um, but not that's all, that's all other discussion. <laughs> that's that's all other. Yeah. No, it's uh, but well, it goes the other way, too. You guys, London had serviced offices as a thing way before the US did. You know, the US always had this cultural idea of, well, I'll go fill my own coffee machine and you know, hire my own janitorial to take out the trash. Whereas the Brits were like, well, you're a highly paid attorney. Why are you fixing the coffee machine? Just have someone else do it, you know? And maybe that's because, frankly, you know, views on class and culture. You guys just liked doing serviced offices more. Maybe that's just a different perspective. But um, that's something that's been working its way into the U.S. 
is people saying, well, I'm a highly paid professional. I should not spend my days worrying about running office space. Let someone else do it. So that that's an example of where you guys, I think, did it first. And we're just catching up to it. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, definitely a lot of tech stuff has gone the other way. I mean, you know, that's that's sort of the way we've evolved. So let me let me ask a couple other questions, just uh, specific product types. So like, you know, we've talked a lot about asset allocation. I do want to dive into predictions and I realize predictions are sort of a, a dangerous thing. But for the next few years, if you were going to pick which product type you think pulls ahead, which product type trails, what what's your sense, big picture, about where we're going in terms of retail, office, multifamily, in your market, obviously, not global, but just in the UK? Yeah, well, all, all the sectors are interesting. I mean, just in that order, I mean, retail is, is basically is trying to find its its level. You know, it is, it is bombed out. Um, but the retailers that are going to go bust, you know, they've gone bust. Um, the high street has now changed. Uh, the shopping malls, they have changed. Um, there's a bit more destruction to go, but you could sort of see it. So we found a level. It used to be that retail was, you know, low yield, high growth. Well, now it is high yield, no growth. Right. So it's a different different product. You've got different occupiers. So, you know, gone are your sort of big multiple retailers. And, and now you've got much more of your nail bars and your, uh, your pet shops and your, you know, goodness only knows what's going to be next. So it's it's sort of found a level. Right. Um, right. And it's all about price. And, you know, one of the things we do with asset allocation is we say, look, we, we don't really mind what sector we're in. We, we just want to know if the price is going to deliver an attractive return or not. And, and that's what we'll do on retail. We, we think probably the yields got to an attractive level. Right. Offices and if you buy a, a high yielding product with not great growth is still a high yielding product. So that's not yeah. bad. Office? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, everyone, everyone always likes a product that grows, but sometimes, well, we'll just take the yield and sure. don't worry about the growth. Offices is fascinating because we're obviously seeing an awful lot of value destruction because because office buildings that are older. Once upon a time, you know, you, you build an office building for twenty five years, you'd, you'd let it to a really good covenant, and then at the end of that time, they'd move on, they'd go somewhere else, and you'd multi let it. That's that's not happening now because we've got all of the uh, sustainability legislation, and and really the length of office life has, has has just been slashed, so a huge amount of value destruction. Equally, there's been a, a marked reduction in demand because of working from home and flexible working. But the great thing about offices is they do depreciate and they do disappear, and and you are basically therefore left with a with a new office market, and in this office market there aren't really enough really well-located, high-quality buildings uh, to meet any increase in demand. So at the moment, there isn't really much of an increase in demand. But what we want to see in an office market is where there's the conditions in place, i.e. not much uh, crane activity, mm. uh, so that if there is an upswing in the economy, such as the US has had, which we unfortunately haven't, rents will suddenly start going up. So... The high vacancy rates are concerning if you own that kind of stock. But what hopefully investors are sort of positioning themselves for is, is basically an upside shock. And, and we could see office rents you know, spike higher, 30, 40 percent, which they've done in the past many, many times. We could see that happening again. 
Well, and your point about office stock is interesting in that you know office stock is is broad. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of older depreciated stuff that just frankly does not compete with a newer asset. And whether or not it's sustainability regulation in terms of law or just preference, I mean, it seems a lot of firms are now saying, look, regardless of the regulations, we're concerned. Exactly. We we want to do this regardless, even if the government doesn't tell us to do it. Uh, which I think is a major cultural shift. And um, we've seen it in the U.S. I mean, we are definitely a divided country politically. So it's definitely more of an issue in some markets than in others, but it's it's still part of the conversation. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of obsolete office product globally. And the obsolete stuff, I don't think anyone has any idea what the heck they're going to do with. Um, that, that's nope. Stuff. Um, but, you know, I've, I've worked in cities for, for many years and if you look around cities, you will always find, you know, office buildings that once upon a time were lovely and new and, and look pretty decrepit. And sure. it's a it's a terrible process of destruction, but that's the office market. That's life. And, and they could be teardowns. And that's OK if they're well located. Um, and then finally, multifamily apartments. What's your sense on yeah. multifamily? Um, well, we're pivoting a little bit into multifamily. Um the, the residential sector in the UK is is just minute compared to most mainland European countries uh, and indeed the US. So, you know, if, if most countries are at 25, 30 percent of investor portfolios, we're down at five, six percent. Um, although with a little bit of a history, uh, when I when I first got a job at a fund management house, they were actually selling their multifamily uh, and they were selling it because there had been rent controls. So in the 1960s, they decided, right, we'll get out of multifamily. So it took them 20 years to, to, to dispose of the last building. Um, that same organization, Legal and General, is now at the forefront in the UK. So we're going to see the sector grow massively. Um, I, just, I just can't can't see it going any other way. So we find it very interesting uh, to be involved. Um what exactly the, the stock becomes is is then interesting because you've got the multifamily, you've got the single family, you've got the senior living, you've got the co-living. Right. There are a lot, the bit ways, a lot of different ways yeah. to put a roof over your head. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's a much broader market. And we, we have the same conversations here. I mean, there's rental product, there's for sale product. What do you do about the fact that people are putting off marriage and kids longer and longer? Does that mean there's more need for rentals? Is it a different quality of rental? Because now they, they're affluent. They're renters by choice, not renters because of poverty, you know, um, and that that's a different mix. Um, no, it's it's definitely um, your point about the UK market, I, I find as an outsider fascinating uh, in that, um, yeah, you're a nation of homeowners. You, you don't have your rental market is very small, uh, which. Yeah is interesting i mean i just i it's not it's not my mindset uh i mean i live in a house but it's it it's a it's a good illustration of how how important regulation can be because bad regulation in the uk basically meant we didn't have a decent institutional rental market right. and hopefully that'll be put right but you never know with the government and it's you know it's always the caveat and, you know writing a, a research report for investing in residential you know it, it almost writes itself and then you get to the risks and you basically have to write all the regulatory risks and you just think you know that sure. that's the issue 
then there's a change of government and the rules change. And then, yeah, no, and, and that's well put is that multifamily, um, the rules change a lot more than they do on other product types because homeowners and renters vote. And as a result, they have opinions, whereas uh, yeah. your nail salon doesn't. Uh, no. you, know, it, it's, you know, the business doesn't get to vote. The people do. Uh, no, it's, it's interesting stuff. It's interesting stuff. Well, look, it, it's fascinating to talk about the forecasting model. I guess my, my, my last question would be, um, and it, it's just a client question more. So, you know, you've got these clients, they're like, what kind of clients, what, what do you think of as your ideal client? Like, what are you looking for in the client relationship? Like, you're a service provider, I get that. But what are you looking from them in terms of feedback, communication? Like, what, what's a good relationship for you? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the ideal client is where you've got a, a fund management house, which which has got a research department, but there might only be one person or, or maybe two people. So it's impossible for them to do it all themselves. They have to outsource. So they're the, the ideal client. Um, there's a big issue in the UK in that we have a lot of private equity, a lot of it North American based, you know, mm -hmm. investing across Europe. Yep. So actually those type of organizations are really struggling at the moment. And, and a lot of the money is going to these, you know, vast uh, PE shops. And of course, what they're doing is, is, is asset allocation or forecasting very much at the top down level you know they're really not interested in the returns on individual buildings they're, they're making calls on huge portfolios you know whole sectors sure paris so the whole versus life, london office versus retail sure so the whole emphasis has just changed over the last 10 years which which is which i mean i find fascinating i mean i i, I love these kind of changes in the industry and uh you only you only get that kind of perceptive when perception when you've actually been around for a while and you see wow you know Things can change massively over very short periods of time. Mm -hmm. So the ideal client is actually, you know, a client that's actually under pressure. But that's that's what we'd like. Um, what's what's also interesting is is where clients are starting. I know in the US it's it's you know it's far more likely that you've got places that are investing in debt and equity at the same time. Mm -hmm. In the UK, that's really relatively new. And I think it's very interesting when you start saying, well, okay, I could I could lend on retail or I could do an equity on retail. Well, well, how do I make that decision? You know, what, what do I do? Where in the how do I work? Stack do I want to be? Yeah, yeah. it's a risk reward conversation. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that that's that's true. I mean, definitely there's been a real rise in non-bank lenders. I mean, uh, a lot of at least in the U.S., a lot of traditional banks are capital constrained because of everything that happened. So you've got a lot of entities that are not banks who basically will say, well, I used to take an equity position, but, you know, for the right rate, I'll, I'll be a debt provider. Sure. Better security, good yield. You know, it could be worse. Could be worse. Um, interesting. Well, look, this has been very illuminating. It's always good to talk about another market and also about the the life and times of an economic forecaster, because I think it's something a lot of people don't really understand. I think a lot of people, when they think about economic forecasts, they don't think of it as an industry level. They think about it as sort of what they hear on the TV about the economy in general. Um, so good. Well, look, um, I'm really glad we had the chance to go through these things. And um, thanks again for your time, Malcolm. Much appreciated. Great to chat. Brilliant. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers, Josh.